Welcome back to the Poor Pearls Almanac. I'm your host, Andy, and today we're going to chat a little bit further about last week's episode and the utilization of Bakashi at scale. Our guest today, Brandon Rust, is a big name in the growing cannabis industry. Like a lot of people in cannabis, Brandon's background involves a lot of hands-on education, which has been instrumental in the development for the cannabis industry to both grow and quickly adapt to a high-tax environment while also finding ways to move towards a sustainable agricultural model while working with a high-feeding crop. What I particularly like about Brandon's perspective is while he is an advocate for natural farming, he steers away from vague concepts of what plants want in some amorphous, hippie-type way, but values the resources that exist from agronomy, things like isolated minerals, and is able to bridge these two worlds in a really unique and inspiring way. You can find Brandon's products for Bokashi Earthworks in the show's notes, and I hope you all enjoy this unique conversation that ties together a lot of seemingly disparate ways to tackle growing food. Brandon, thanks so much for coming on. Can you introduce yourself for our audience? Sure. For those of you who aren't familiar with me, my name is Brandon Rust. I have been cultivating cannabis for over 20 years. I specialize in organic agriculture, especially the agronomy and microbiology side for cannabis. I own a consulting company, which is Earthworks Agriculture, and I also own Bokashi Earthworks. And I manufacture microbial consortiums for agriculture. I sell carbon-based humate fertilizer that was developed by NASA Agricultural Technologies. And I also sell amendments like organic amendments for cultivation as well. And you can check out my Instagram at rust.brandon. And you can also check out the website at www.bokashieearthworks.com where you can get all your microbes, fertilizers, amendments, and soil needs. Awesome. The episode before this, we've just kind of gone over the fundamentals of Bokashi. And I'm really interested to know, like, when you started deciding that you needed, I, I heard you in a podcast talk about you had to find a way to cut costs because things were just too expensive. You couldn't make money. And you realized you had to start utilizing stuff that was waste. So why why Bokashi versus, you know, traditional compost or any other methodology? Well, let me give you a, a little bit of history before we get into that on Bokashi Earthworks. So I was cultivating with soil before, right before uh, I started using organic inputs. And it was the drop in market price and where I was at in San Diego in 2014 that kind of pushed that along because I was using house and garden nutrients. I was using like 11 different things. And I was just following recipes, you know, and trying to read plants to figure out what needed to be done to try to maximize my harvest and my yields. And I had switched over um, to all organic cultivation and stopped using uh, synthetic chemical fertilizers. And so I had to relearn. And I had to figure out what was the best way. And at that time, I uh, was a member of a group called the Probiotic Farmers Alliance on Facebook. And it was just talking about, you know, the consortium EM1 and different types of micro, uh, microbiology and also Bokashi and, you know, what that does and what it actually is. And I dove down a really big rabbit hole to find out exactly what was happening and, you know, what were the applications? What was the practical application? Because there was a lot of different science on it, but I always tell people science doesn't matter. 
if there's no practical application. Something that's repli that can be replicated in a lab that has no application in the field has real no no real place in reality. You know, everything else, uh, practical, the practical application of the science is the most important aspect of the science itself. So I just played around with it and um, I saw increases in, uh, you know, the biology of the soil. I saw increases in the availability of nutrition. And then I, you know, started researching what that was, what was happening in these systems. And it was really about uh, organic carbon as a nutrient for the soil system and the ability for different types of microorganisms to sequester that carbon and use those mineral nutrition, those mineral elements that are in the soil along with the carbon to create more complex carbon compounds uh, through their secondary metabolite production, which, you know, have uh, benefits to both the soil and, and the plant can have kind of a synergistic and uh, functional relationship with the plant itself, with some of the chemical uh, constituents that are being produced, like phytohormones, or it could have an indirect plant growth response where a bacteria or microbe is creating sediophore and naturally chelating a mineral element, keeping it in a metabolically or bioavailable form for plant uptake, in which case the plant has access to a nutrient source in the form that it needs where it may not have otherwise been able to get it from that system. Yeah. Listening to you talk is exactly why I actually really enjoy following you on social media is because, you know, there's a lot of people in the natural farming space, but not a lot of them really get into the, the science behind it. It's always using logical understandings of the natural world around us. You know, you can take like KNF and say, all right, you've got these plants by definition, if you use plant material and feed it to the plant that it came from, it has the right nutrients because that's a made up the plant before and like that makes logical sense and like that there's nothing wrong necessarily with that but there's no reason we can't go one step further with it and really understand it on a little bit more of a scientific level and that's something uh, you do a lot of and I, I i personally really appreciate it and you've advocated that we need to do more of this type of work and get more into the agronomy side of things so i'm curious to hear you uh, kind of explain why you think that's so important and maybe why it's not super common right now this is a really good question. This is something that that's often overlooked and you can apply this, you know, almost across the board to everything. So the nutrition for a dog, right. is going to be different than a nutrition from a cow. Now that might not be the best example because those are two different species, but when it comes to plants, it might be a plant, but tomato plant isn't a cannabis plant or a elm tree is in a cannabis plant. And even cannabis plants have different nutritional needs depending on where they originated from. I see this, for example, if you take landrace varieties, which of cannabis, they're going to have, in my experience, less need for heavy nutrition. Like they can thrive in environments that are a little less than optimal as what we would for like production runs of cannabis, right? Yeah, they're less domesticated. And so when we approach things from a nutritional level, just like if we were from our own bodies, we're going to be able to maximize the output and the performance 
And the, and the way that that's done is because the main function of the plant is to synthesize organic compounds from inorganic mineral elements. Those inorganic mineral elements come from the soil in the form of cations and anions, mineral elements, like the ones that you see on the periodic table of elements, right? And they have to be in a specific form for them to be bioavailable for the plant. And those elements are used in the construction of new chemical compounds like glucose during photosynthesis, where they take carbon dioxide and water and they're you know, transported and combined into those elements. Now, different plants will have different genetic dispositions for the way that their metabolisms work. They're not always going to be functioning exactly the same. Different varieties of plant will act differently. And that's why you see so much variation in even like cannabis, tomatoes, cucumbers. You know, you can see there's a large variety of different types of those, those plants. And when we're addressing and we're looking at data to things like soil, analysis to see total overall what is in that soil you know so we know how much mineral nutrition of what element is there and what i also look at is saturated paste which is how that soil is falling into solution and what that is equivalent is to looking at the bioavailability of the nutrition and then the quantity of that nutrition in the water that the plant is absorbing into itself. And so if we can create a balanced profile with the right amount of mineral nutrition as it falls into solution, then we can create, you know, optimal, you will get the if we can, we can, you know, dial that in with the soil. So we can look at how that falls into solution. If something isn't where it should be, we can adjust the soil, what's in the soil by adding X amendment for you know, calcium. If it was calcium, it might be something like wollastonite, which is calcium silica, or gypsum, which is calcium sulfate. You know, maybe you'll, if maybe you're going to use something like bone meal or crab meal, regardless of whatever the calcium source is, you're looking pretty much at a specific mineral nutrient as opposed to just dumping like a one uh, all part one 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 you're looking at specific elements and adding just what needs to be added to optimize that system because too much of one thing can create imbalance in that system and so you need to have a sufficient amount of nutrition in that soil but it also needs to be balanced as it's falling into solution and chemistry is what tells us how that works and the way it works is because they disassociate from different clay colloids or the surfaces of organic matter, the, these mineral elements, these particles, right? And the quantity that's in there, plus the redox potential and pH of those soils is ultimately going to dictate how things diffuse into solution and become available. And so we're looking at physical properties of of chemicals how they react and then we're looking at the biology and the the systems that they operate on are you know just a different scale of the physical and then the chemical we are seeing the biology right it's something that we can actually you know the tangible world around us and so these systems kind of mirror each other in the way that they operate and then once we start seeing the biology you know they're sequestering 
inorganic compounds, creating organic compounds, making new compounds, and they're creating these chemical changes, which changes the biology sometimes, you know? So it like, it is this interacting synergy that is working in real time. And you have to, you, you know, when you're, when you know what's happening, when you can take a snapshot of that and be like, bam, at this week of this plant's life, the soil looks exactly how it should for this particular crop, right? And you can take it even further at that particular time. You can also take samples like leaf tissue and leaf tissue analysis will give you an understanding of how much of what is actually being stored as a percentage in that leaf itself. And if you know your optimal ranges for what that look should look like, if you know that calcium should be between four and a half and five and a half percent, and it's under or it's over, then you can adjust those target levels that you put in to begin with. So you can look at the soil itself as one system. And then if you look at the plant as another system, and when we're looking at the plant as a system, we're looking at leaf tissue and then sap analysis. And then what sap analysis does, it allows you to look at two different parts of the plant. So you take fully photosynthetic leaves from the bottom of the plant, fully photosynthetic mature leaves from the top of the plant, and it allows you to see the nutrient profile of both. And so what that is showing you is how nutrients, mobile nutrients are being translocated within the plant itself. And so that gives you more data because it shows you that the plant, like here, I'm going to give you an instant, uh, an example. Nitrogen is a mobile element. The plant will pull it from its lower tissue to, um, to make a sufficient to, to, it'll pull from lowers if there's not enough that it's getting from the soil to supplement what it needs for the top growth. And typically we'll see this as yellowing of the bottom leaves, right? But with sap analysis and tissue analysis, you can look at the plant before it actually shows those symptoms and see that mechanics happening. You can see the nitrogen being lower at the bottom leaves than it is at the top. And in that case, you know, if they're not even, then you know that the plant is actually translocating that nitrogen from the bottom of the plant to the top of the plant. And you can see that as soon as it starts happening. And, and if you catch it, before it shows as a deficiency symptom, which is usually 40 or 50% deficiency already, well, then what, you're, then what ends up happening is that you can preemptively act and you can treat that before it actually ever becomes a symptom or an issue that, that you can see visually. And so it gives you more data and it allows you to actually dial in, you know, what the nutritional profile from soil to tissue to sap should look like for either an entire species of plant in general, or you could dial it in for cultivar specific nutritional SOPs to, to say, hey, you know, we noticed that with this particular variety, the nitrogen content needs to be lower, the phosphorus content needs to be higher, the calcium content needs to be lower. And then you build a profile that says, okay, these are our standard where we're normally at across the board for everything that we run. And then you can change that. You can change that up and kind of tweak it around based off of the data that you've collected. You know, ideally what we want to do is we want to connect the data that we capture in real time. And then also, uh, I mean, that from the lab, from soil and tissue analytics that we get from the lab. And we want to connect that with real time analytics, things like soil hydrology, soil EC, 
and then looking at if we have ions uh, target selective probes, we can look at things like calcium, magnesium, potassium, nitrogen levels in real time. And then we can also look at, you know, VPD, which is our air and room temp. And then we can look at leaf surface temp and humidity. We can look at air movement. We can, and we can get all of these things in a computer that basically logs it all. And then we can make these really, really comprehensive data sets and analytics to see like, hey, this is what our nutritional profile was. This is what was happening with the plant. This is where our temperatures, our VPD was at. This is, this is where our water hydrology, our EC. And then if I have a, a data set like that, it's just like having a data set of soil in front of me. And I can look at that and I can start to make real-time analytics. The more information that we can collect, we can go back and look at our numbers for what our yields were and what varieties were and what the temperatures. And, you know, we can go back and see like where we're maximized at for our temperatures and our VPD and our PPFD for our lighting schedule, you know, and like our ramping schedules. And, you know, just we can have a huge comprehensive data set that can be analyzed. It can be analyzed and you can maximize your cultivation, the amount of inputs, your, you know, and if you're doing that also from a business perspective where you're maximizing your analytics for your business too, not just the cultivation side, but your whole overall business with your marketing and your distribution and you optimizing social media and website visibility, things like that labor, everything. You take analytics on everything so that way you can go and look and see where you can improve and what you can make better. So really optimize this because if you're not doing it right now, then you're slacking because federal legislation is, is around the corner and people are going to need to be able to treat this like the thing that it is, which is an agriculture crop. Hey there, it's Andy from the Corporal's Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. If you look historically, farmers do the hardest jobs, some of the hardest work, the longest hours, and get paid the least amount of money, right? And cannabis is is a high dollar value crop. So I don't think it's ever going to drop off to the point where you won't be able to make a comprehensive business model with it, but you need to be able to be prepared for what happens if we get overtaxed and overregulation and we have to fight back, but we can't lose our businesses. We have no other opportunity, no other way to operate, but have to pay these taxes. Well, then we have to figure out ways to decrease our, our costs. And these are the ways to do it is with the business analytics and then agronomy that goes with it, the microbiology side, looking at how to optimize those soil systems. Because one of the things that I've been talking about for a really long time is biological crop steering. And it's looking at specific consortiums and what they do, what what their metabolites are, and what the benefit is going to be. And then implementing those at the proper timing. 
And one of the things that I talk about all the time is the combination of trichoderma and bacillus subtilis for nutrient cycling, pathogen suppression, but for the sediophore production, because trichoderma zarium, parzanium, excuse me, is known for its high affinity for iron in the compounds that it creates that basically creates a natural carbon chelation system. You know, it's not that chemical synthesized EDTA stuff that it doesn't dissipate like nature, like that whole, that molecule is a very strong bond and it's, it doesn't dissipate in nature very easily, but these, these carbon chelated molecules, iron, especially, and I talk about iron with sediophores all the time. Iron is a photosynthetic nutrient and it's needed in uh, a pretty decent quantity, even though it's, you know, a micronutrient. And when you put iron into a system with the type of water and pH that we're using, it oxidizes so quickly. But if you have the biological component naturally chelating that iron, you're going to be able to have, and it shows this on the data. So if you take, you know, your saturated paste, you can see someone that's not using something like trichoderma and bacillus subtilis versus someone who is, you can see it on the actual data and saturated paste because you're going to have a higher amount in solution of bioavailable iron when you use something like that. And those are the reasons why it's being able to actually quantify the use of the biology or the input that you're putting into that system. You know, you need to be able to figure out what it is. If you know this is what you're putting in, you know the colony forming units of what you're putting into that system and you can quantify it on data and say, here's the side-by-side, here's the analytics. I mean, that's the most important thing because other than if you, if you don't, you're not going to be able to really, it, other than that, it's just, it's hearsay. It, it's just anecdotal evidence. And if you want to be able to, you know, stand out amongst the, in the cultivation and, and, so I can make the claims that I do like this is the least expensive way to go approach it. And here's the data to back up what's going on. I need to be able to show my clients that I need to be able to show people who are interested in scaling out these types of systems for mainstream agriculture, because I do it in cannabis and I'm going to do it really well. I'm going to grow this thing really, really big, but I'm also, you know, ideally creating higher nutritionally dense food and regenerating soil with these same types of practices where you take your green waste material and you either put it back into the land through composting techniques or uh, solid state fermentation to make biofertilizers, implementing your crop covers, multiple species, planting, the use of biological crop steering, knowing when to apply what type of microorganism at what, to- uh, at what period of time to optimize its efficacy on the crop and to maximize the benefit for the crop. They're all things. And again, it's all just part of a holistic, you know, trying to build a holistic model for farming and agriculture, because the way the things that we have right now, they it's nobody took that approach. It would just like throw chemicals on this and subsidize agriculture, guarantee farmers this much, even if the market doesn't demand that they have oversupplies, subsidized agriculture isn't going to last forever because it's not a sustainable business model. And so what what we're going to see is we're going to see vertically integrated farming models that use data analytics and things like blockchain technology to where they're able to build out organic systems and carbon positive systems to where they're not only making profit off of 
uh, integrated business farming systems, but they're also taking advantage of tax credits for carbon, you know, carbon offset. You know, so yeah. these things are hu- are going to be huge in the future, and they're going to almost be mandatory. I guarantee you, there be a lot of these are going to be mandatory in a lot of states that have you know soil and water toxicities and that are having issues with their soil. Yeah, before this episode comes out, we're a couple episodes before we're releasing one on uh, biochar and its ability to pull some of those toxins out of the water. And I feel like that fits into kind of what you're talking about. And one of the things that I think is important that you're bringing up that we don't hear a whole lot of is agriculture in general kind of goes on a pendulum where we we swung to the right on like using fertilizers, maximizing productivity. And then you've seen this counterweight swing back on natural farming, organic farming, but it's not like there it's are not, good, it's, go it, this is, I think I know what you're saying. Yeah. Look, it, I love the natural farming, right? That is, if, if you have land, I feel like it's your responsibility almost as human to be a steward of that land and do everything you can to build that up, you know, to help regenerate where it's at, you know, doing it at scale is, is really just, you know, cause when we're talking about hundreds of thousands of hectare acres of land that's being farmed in monoculture uh, systems, how do you natural farm technique that, you know, how do you build enough IMO? How, you know, so we need to find practical solutions. So that way that, because we can't just eliminate big ag, it will completely devastate the world. Like billions of people will starve. And I'm personally not okay with that. So the, the solution to that is find comprehensive solutions that can be implemented with the tools that are already in use or in place. Things like carbon-based fertilizers, things like microbial inoculants. These things have usage and applications that just need to be implemented. And the biggest thing is people are just uh, not highly educated on it. It's normally the people who have come to Big Ag from Big Ag said, hey, this is how we conventionally do this. And it's because that's what's conventionally taught in institutions, right? And and so now we're, you know, modern age, we're, we don't have a choice, dude. We're at peak phosphorus in 26, uh, 2060. And people are always screaming about climate change, this and that. And it's like, dude, we're going to run out of phosphorus before that which means the decline of billions of people because without commercially available phosphate, if we don't like we have it, like ag has to change. There is no other option. It's like not an option at this point. We literally have 40 freaking years of like, that's it. We're at peak phosphorus. We are at the point where we are like things. It's going to get wild time to shit or get off the pot. (laughs) It's, it's, it's really like that. And so we just need to be able to build those systems. You know, and and I I think, you know, the point you're making that is, um, you know, while conventional agriculture has like numerous negative consequences, that doesn't mean there aren't things we can pull from it, like the capacity to isolate particular, you know, minerals and things like that, and using data to drive crop productivity um, and all these different tools that we have available to us, just because they come from the system that has not been good doesn't mean the tools themselves are the problem. And that's where I think like you can take the natural farming, you can take these ideas of, okay, there's a lot of different ways we can fix, whether it's the indigenous microorganisms or uh, creating, you know, less, uh, you know, petrochemical heavy driven water soluble fertilizers, like, you know, water soluble calcium or whatever. 
but we can still use the other side, the the tools that come from the other side. There's no reason we can't do both and uh, use that for the, the best benefit for everyone. You have to remember that although there's been a lot of really, really negative things, and I'm not trying to stand up for big ag at all, uh, billions of people still do depend on those systems, you know, all over the world, unfortunately. And, it, and to have the mindset that, oh, we should just destroy all big ag, like that's kind of a, a negative mindset that, that doesn't empower anything, right? And if you really want to, you know, be proactive, the, 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 the truth of the matter is it, we have to be proactive to be able to change the system and figure out things that work well and then say, Hey, you guys, I know that you guys are the, some of the major players. I think that you guys could do better. We've built systems out, you know, here it is just because typically, you know, it, it's so weird because there's such a weird paradox between the way that our social systems are set up with the financially and then like doing what's like profitable and convenient over what's doing right. Right. And so we all kind of participate in a lot of what is happening, regardless of if we try not to, or if we're aware of it, you know, and it's something that's like, that's what's always try to kind of driven me to figure out better systems and then go and implement this. Like I'm going to be getting my own piece of land here shortly. So I can go and do all of the stuff that I've been doing in cannabis and implement these techniques into agriculture now and build, and again, build a business just like I would in a cannabis business, but with food. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, to get to what you're saying, and I think this kind of underscores a lot of the points you're trying to make is that when we talk about natural farming, it ultimately ends up being this kind of hyper individualistic thing where it's like, okay, I'm going to make water soluble calcium out of the eggs for my chickens. And it's like this uh, vision of trying to create a closed loop system, which isn't inherently bad, but it's also not efficient. And it's not, it's not how we've ever existed on the earth as humans. Like no one has ever gone and lived on their own a hundred percent and then met somebody had kids and like perpetuated that as like a living condition. We've always collectively lived together. Yeah. And that community component really should frame up how we think about agriculture and even natural farming or however you want to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be really interesting to see how, our ag systems develop in the future with the implementation of technology and like the new type of green tech, like technology for like the data and I and it side, you know, and then also the new technology for things like carbon based fertilizers, you know, where you're, you have something that's maybe water soluble, but doesn't have the negative impact because it's, carbon base and you're having things like the biology that's also able to sequester the uh the mineral nutrition yeah that that's really interesting i never really thought about the biological capacity for that mineral retention and and the way you describe it you know i always think about the biology existing to make soluble forms of minerals for plants but never as a tool necessarily to keep it within the soil yeah. So carbon, you have different types of carbon functional groups. Uh, carboxylic acid is one of those and it can create these chains. It's, it's basically pure humic or fulvic acid. 
and you know at different ph ranges they react differently and they'll kind of chelate different mineral elements and they'll keep them in a biologically available form because on their own in nature a lot of these mineral elements don't exactly live free in nature you know like the phosphate anion that the plant needs that is the only form available it only exists freely in nature for a small period of time i mean you could put a lot into a system and have it there but naturally it doesn't usually exist in abundance unless it's a highly biological system and the reason is is because that that species that molecule it's so highly reactive and so if it comes in contact with something like calcium or iron or zinc or manganese it's going to it's going to bond to that and become a new a new substance that's not bioavailable you know so when you have it attached to one of these carbon functional groups it holds it in in that in a form that is still metabolically available to the plant and since it's a weak bond it's easier for it to disassociate you know into solution or to disassociate onto the surface area of the root cell. Yeah. How does this methodology, I guess, play into like the use of Bakashi? Um, Like how, how, why I I asked you earlier about Bakashi, why you chose or went that direction, but. So I'm not, I'm not currently using like Bokashi in my, in my grows right now. It's because I have enough carbon. We're looking at carbon as a nutrient now, like we weren't before, and the biology. And that's what the Bokashi was bringing in. So is that just the the traditional EM1, or were you messing with other stuff because the fact that you noticed it? Before I was, in the beginning of my Bokashi journey, I was manufacturing the Bokashi with mineral amendments, fermenting that with the EM. And so you would get the carbon from the Bokashi because... It's a wheat brand substrate. And so you're getting carbon into the system. You're getting the minerals into the system. You're also getting the microbiology into the system. And that's all of those are good things to have. With with my advancement and my understanding, though, I don't need to add something extra into that system because I already have the mineral nutrition. I'm already addressing carbon and I'm already addressing the biology. So at this point, at scale for indoor cannabis cultivation, which is what I'm doing, it doesn't make sense to go and buy something like wheat bran, add the mineral nutrition to it, ferment that because it's labor intensive, it's not cost effective, and then add that as opposed to what I'm already doing. So what I'm for for the system that I'm currently running, it doesn't make sense from a logistics perspective point of view uh, or and or financial. Uh, So However, when, when I now talk about the Bokashi and making biofertilizers, what I'd like to see is all of the green waste from conventional agriculture can be turned into biofertilizers, right? It can be solid state fermented. Any waste matter, any green matter, anything that's organic, even if it's uh, meat products, right? They can be uh, basically digested or pulverized down really into just you know, like it was a, you know, a shredder or whatever, and it gets solid state fermented, you can turn that into biofertilizer. So everything that's in there is going to be basically enzymatically broken down 
in this fermentation process into its basic mineral components and the carbon and it's going to do it through biological means so while it's doing this biology is building up and proliferating so you're building a biofertilizer and so bokashi the the actual word is a japanese word and it's a type of fermenting anaerobic fermenting uh composting system and that's the basis of what we're doing we're taking we're taking this waste product that would normally you know have no home would go to a, a landfill and we're turning it into a bio fertilizer that can add that carbon add that biology and add that mineral nutrition back into the system that it came from and it's part it's one of the parts of creating a carbon positive farming system you know, it's one of the parts, you know, you have all these separate things that all work mechanistically together to function as a whole. And we have to look at everything holistically. But that part of the Bokashi system is being able to take waste from other industries and turn it in to something that's going to be useful and impactful in a positive manner for our environment and for farming. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's where I think, uh, like, it sounds like the biofertilizer is very similar to like a FPJ or something like that, but probably a, a different, uh, carbohydrate base is my guess, or is it basically different based? carbohydrate base? And we're also using, you know, the, a specific consortium of bacillus, su- uh, pseudomonas and, uh, saccharomyces strains of bacteria and fungus. Is that uh, one of the videos I saw on your Instagram was um, adding some molasses to a, a big tank? Was that the, that process? Yes. And I also add other things than just uh, molasses because microbes also need mineral nutrition. And so we add things like carbon sources and uh, I can't give out my secret sauce, sure, sure. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I add some good, some stuff in there to help prolif- with the proliferation of the uh, microbes. So that's, that's one of the things, you know, it's just about that farming. If we can, if we can implement these systems with conventional ag, it's one of the ways that we can help start to bioremediate soils and get, or, you know, build up, build back up soil carbon and get it back into the soil, which will inherently, you know, we build up our soil organic matter and the, the diversity and the, uh, you know, actually maybe not even the diversity, but specific populations of microbes that will be able to sequester atmospheric carbon. You know, that's one of the things that when it comes to uh, carbon emissions from farming, that's one of the ways that we can actually reduce carbon emissions is by building up soil health, because we have things like, you know, uh, pseudomonas bacteria that that are photosynthetic. We have purple non-sulfur bacteria, and we have soil microbes that are, you know, photosynthetic, and they can sequester uh, atmospheric carbon, and they're creating, you know, more complex carbon compounds through photosynthesis, and then they're putting those into the soil itself. So it's building up soil carbon from the atmosphere, you know. So if we can build up those types of uh, populations that we know are beneficial, we can, you know, hopefully build up that soil organic carbon storage and get healthier, better crops that have higher nutritional density, more food in your food. So I think with all of this, like for somebody that's new to, you know, natural farming or kind of dipping their toes in the idea of like composting beyond like having a smelly, you know, pile in the corner of their yard. um, 
where, what do you think is like a good place to start? Like, what would you recommend now that you've, it sounds like you've explored a bit of like the whole spectrum of natural farming a bit from KNF, Jadam, uh, and Bokashi. And now you've kind of created your own little thing. Where would you suggest people start? I would start by getting your hands in the dirt and just doing it. You know, action is the biggest thing you could you there's a lot of it's difficult because there's so much information to choose from you know find things that are simple to do that are easy for you to do at home if you're a home gardener and figure out what works for you you know that's the best thing that you could do there's plenty of good information out there there's plenty of good speakers there's plenty of good authors and there's tons of information Uh, but you can go down some serious rabbit holes that might not really end up having any actual practical application or benefit in in the real world and so to save yourself maybe a little bit of time and heartache look really hard at the people who are having success you know see who those people are in the communities that you work with and try to find who they are and then see you know what they're doing and how how they're applying their methodologies to what they're cultivating yeah and i think for and this might be a little critical but uh i'll say it anyway it's my podcast right (laughs) um i think a lot of uh one thing to be aware of is to start paying attention to how many people are teaching classes and how many people are getting paid to do that type of work is also really helpful because it's it's very easy to sell that something works well. It's another thing to like yourself to put your name on the line and say, if this doesn't work, I don't get paid. And that, that means something that yeah. there's some accountability there. Well, you know, I've set it up so that I'm willing to give people information. I help most of the people that hit me up on social media. I do what I can as much as I can for the community uh, while staying extremely busy with multiple businesses. But I, and I also have an outlet. So if someone does appreciate the information and, or they do want to try the products and the microbes and the soil and the things that I provide, it's there. You know, it's there for them to delve into. I always try to make sure that people have the best uh, experience and I try to help people along where, wherever I can. I definitely learned a bit from you today. So I, I appreciate it. Um, I know you plugged some of your stuff at the beginning, but if people were just kind of tuning in a little bit and now they really want to follow you along, where can, uh, where can I send them? I have social media. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Bokashi Earthworks. That's B-O-K-A-S-H-I, Earthworks, all one word. Um, You can find my personal IG, which I do a lot of the cannabis content and education on there, at Rust, R-U-S-T, dot Brandon. Be careful. There are a lot of fakes and impersonators. I do have one backup account that is Rust Brandon. But yeah, you can find me there. I do a lot of education. You can kind of see what we're producing out here in Southeast Oklahoma. Try to keep up to date with some of the legislation and stuff that's going on out here in Oklahoma, you know, education for cannabis and farming and all that good stuff. Yeah. It's cool stuff. The evidence that you, you show in your own, uh, on your own, uh, Instagram that of your clients, uh, speaks for the fact that you're, you're doing some good work. So I definitely uh, appreciate to hear your thoughts. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, It was a pleasure speaking to you, and um, I'm sure we could do it again sometime. Sounds good. Have a good one. Have a good day.